You are Locked On Ravens, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Locked On Ravens. I am your host, Kevin Ostriker of Ravens Wire, and we had a really fun episode yesterday diving into the 59-10 to 10 thrashing that the Ravens gave the Miami Dolphins, and I personally can't get enough of it, so let's just talk about it some more today with our regular Tuesday guest, Spencer Schultz. How are you doing today, Spencer? I'm doing fantastic. It was a wonderful weekend. I went 3-0 and in fantasy. The Ravens set a team record for most points and yards scored and are the talk of the town, which I'm sure will fade away shortly as no one really cares about the Ravens. They could probably go 16-0 and and the Dallas Cowboys will get more coverage or something. But fantastic, excited, glad to be here, glad to be talking Ravens football with you again, Kevin. Great. I'm excited you are back, and let's get right into that, especially because it seemed like despite the Ravens having such an, an almost flawless game, that there's been a lot of hate in Twitter and maybe even on the national stage saying that it's just the Miami Dolphins, but how much should Ravens fans and all of us read into them beating arguably maybe the worst team in the league? So the Dolphins are going to win games. Maybe they're the worst. They're definitely not going to be a playoff team. But if you go look on Football Outsiders, which is universally considered one of the leading top dogs of football analytics and football knowledge. I'm sure all the listeners are pretty familiar with them in some way or another. Um, they kind of have a constitution of firm beliefs as a group, as as football outsiders. One of their most important ones is championship teams are generally defined by their ability to dominate inferior opponents, not their ability to win close games. So Warren Sharp, who does uh, analysis, he has his own website. He's been a huge proponent of the Ravens, but has been a really up-and-coming guy. I'm a big fan of him. Go follow him if you want good content and analytics and breakdowns and stuff. But So he looked at last year specifically in regards to what Football Outsiders said. He looked at 19 games where teams won by 30 or more, which is generally considered a blowout. Of those 19 games, 14 of the wins were by a playoff team, and 12 of those wins were by a team that won one playoff game. Say what you want about the Dolphins. If you can destroy a team that you're supposed to beat, that's a good thing. There's no reason to take any negative out of that. And just simply, we'll get into it in more depth, but Lamar Jackson having incredible ball placement against an all-pro cornerback who had seven interceptions last year, a Pro Bowl safety, and a rising star in Micah Fitzpatrick. Micah Fitzpatrick, in all of 2018, was targeted 68 times. He allowed one touchdown reception. Sunday, he was targeted six times, allowed six receptions for 117 yards and two touchdowns. So he got smoked. It wasn't just like the scrubs everyone's trying to pretend like he is. The Dolphins will win games. So anyone who wants to say that is probably the same people who are saying Lamar Jackson's a running back and yada yada. They just want to hate on the Ravens and get Ravens fans riled up. So I'm really excited. I think there were countless positives to take out of this game and i'm excited to get into it and i feel like with all the hate the ravens are getting there was somebody on twitter who said that okay if the ravens were able to put up and lamar jackson was able to put up 324 yards and five touchdowns then every single quarterback who plays miami should do the exact same thing if it was you know just miami i think the dolphins are going to prove that they're not a pushover are they going to be a mediocre team 
probably not. They're probably going to be, you know, probably towards the top five of the draft. But that's not right. to say that they don't have talent on their roster, especially in that secondary. And coming into the season, the biggest question on Lamar Jackson was, you know, can he throw the ball? And I can't remember which Dolphins player it was, but there was a post-game comment from one of their defensive tackles, I believe, that the game plan was pretty much to make Lamar Jackson throw the ball, and that Lamar Jackson did. He hasn't alleviated all concerns yet because it is just one game, but as the season goes on and what us Ravens fans have seen is that he's really improved in the the quality of his throws, the accuracy, the footwork. So while it's only one game, I think this is really a tone setter for the rest of the Ravens season. Another tone setter for the next few weeks, unfortunately, for this Ravens secondary, Jimmy Smith left in the first quarter with a grade two MCL sprain. Anthony Abert took over for him. Didn't really have a great first few series, but really came back. John Harbaugh said Avert impressed him once he got his quote-unquote sea legs under him. So what do you take about that injury, and what's your takeaway from Jimmy Smith being out and Avert coming in? It was really unfortunate. Anyone who's played pickup basketball has probably had someone come roll up on their ankle and their knee. Jimmy was, I mean, I'm not exactly a MD, but Jimmy was taking pictures after the game with, like, the other defensive backs and smiling and walking around. He didn't seem like he was in a ton of pain. So I'm pleasantly surprised that, I mean, I didn't think it was horrible because he did, he kind of walked off and was okay. And then I, like I said, I saw him smiling and stuff, but I'm happy that it's a grade two MCL sprain. He's going to be okay. Luckily the chiefs uh, be, I'm not trying to speak poorly of another player's injury situation, but it's fortunate silver lining for the Ravens and Tyree kills injury that, They'll be without Jimmy Smith, so that kind of neutralizes a tick for attack there looking towards the Chiefs game in Week 3. Averitt is solid. I was really impressed with Brandon Carr. He's just so calm. If he gets beat, he's not worried. And that was on display in the Chargers matchup in L.A. last year where the first play of the game, Mike Williams got a couple steps on him. Brandon Carr is so calm. He just runs under the ball, turns his head, makes a play on it. He had a couple instances of that in this game. So the Ravens are all right. They're thinner. Everyone wanted to get rid of Jimmy Smith earlier this year. Uh, Tavon Young is on IR, done for the year. So suddenly it's Anthony Averitt as the third corner. Amon Marshall, you know, is on the IR. Don't think he'd be activated till week eight. So you're going to be seeing probably some Deshaun Elliott used a little bit more, some Justin Bethel, some Brennan Trowick, who's played really well uh, on both special teams and defense. But Fortunately for Jimmy, he'll be back, and I'm happy that it's not a significant injury, and I think the Ravens will be able to tough it out with Wink's schematic prowess. They're going to be a little more tired at the end of games with not having that three-headed monster at cornerback. Brandon Carr and Marlon Humphrey will have to play a few more snaps, but overall, I think the secondary is up to the task, and the talent level is just through the roof. But let's get into some pro football focus grades. Spencer, what did you see from pro football focus that really caught your eye from this Ravens game? So the obvious one that PFF put out was the obvious attention getter was that Lamar Jackson had the highest quarterback grade. Then Marquise Brown was the highest rated wide receiver with a 94, which is crazy high from them. It was also funny because Marquise Brown only played 14 snaps, which is asinine that he had the day that he had on 14 snaps. (laughs) Then Mark Andrews had the highest grade for a tight end. I believe it was in the 93 grade range. So those were the obvious ones. I think they were well-deserved. Mark Andrews made some crazy tight contested catches on good passes from both RG3 and Lamar Jackson. The negative one that was a little surprising is Matt Skura received a 33 pass blocking grade, which is like, I would think that's what the grade would be for a high school, like a starting high school varsity center if he went and played in the 
the NFL. Like that is an atrocious grade. That is one of the lowest I've seen, and it doesn't match what my eyes tell me on film. So I'm not sure why that is. I mean, Skura didn't do anything that stood out extremely poor. Did he get overextended at times? Yes. Did he get pushed into the pocket a little bit? Yes. But he also anchored decently. He got good push in the run game, which doesn't affect his pass score, but he moved better. He showed improvement. He's looked better. He looks more stout. So I'm uh, I'm disagreeing with PFF on that one heavily. I think Skura at least should have been graded as a average performance, if not above average. Yeah, and I think that whole offensive line had a great performance, Skura included. I wasn't very impressed with Skura last year, but he came in this offseason and, to my understanding, didn't have a great start. But if this is any indication of how he's going to play for the rest of the year, I think that it's going to be good for this offensive line to have a solid player at center. There were a few holes towards the end of the season, especially in that Chargers playoff loss. So overall, I was very happy with Matt Skura. Now looking at Lamar Jackson's stats, what were some things that really jumped out? He had a few records. He had a plethora of records. So number one, he is the youngest passer in NFL history to post a perfect passer rating with at least 20 attempts. He's the only Ravens quarterback to ever post a perfect passer rating with a qualifying 17 attempts. Lamar Jackson had the highest yards per attempt recorded over the last 10 years, and that's as far back as the advanced analytics go. His net yards per attempt, which is including sack yards, was the highest recorded since Johnny Unitas, I believe. His QBR was the highest posted since a certain six foot six Delaware former Delaware hen with the initials JF posted a 99.4 back in week 10 of 2014 against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, Lamar set all kinds of records. He was sharp as a tack. And the number one stat that probably stands out is that he had two carries for seven yards or three carries for six yards, depending on which site you're looking on and how they scored one of his carries. But uh, yeah, he was pristine. He posted a, a historic day. He did it in three quarters. That is the most impressive thing um, to me. That is on par with the opening day performance that Peyton Manning had against the Ravens, um, against the team that ended up going 5-11 and 11 that year, where Peyton Manning threw seven touchdowns because Lamar had five in three quarters. And Lord knows if they trotted him out in the first team offense, Ravens would have scored 80 points, 70 points, 80 points easily. They let off the gas after a while, finally let off the gas and kind of took their foot off the throat of the Dolphins. And it was outstanding. It was fun to watch. And there's a lot of foots and a lot of mouths on Monday and moving forward. And people want to say what they want to say. Let's talk briefly about these rookie receivers that Lamar was throwing to. They had a few interesting stats of their own. Oh, absolutely. Hollywood Brown set an NFL record for most receiving yards in a debut game. He had touchdowns on his first two catches, which has only been done two other times in NFL history. Miles Boykin and Hollywood Brown are the first pair of rookie teammates to both catch a touchdown on their first reception in their debut game. Hollywood Brown averaged over 10 yards per play, not per catch, not per route run, per play. Wow. He had 147 yards on 14 snaps, so just over 10 per play. Absolutely insane. He had 18 yards per route run. He was pretty close to, I mean, Xavier Howard made a outstanding play on a deep ball. And then Lamar, one of his 
three incompletions, one of only two that wasn't a throwaway, overshot Hollywood by, you know, a foot or two. Hollywood kind of slowed up. He was about two total feet away from having a 250-yard day in his debut game. And the most impressive catch of the day to me or play of the day by a wide receiver was actually Miles Boykin. So he took a release. You can see this on my Twitter. I've posted a bunch of video breakdowns. But Miles Boykin took an inside release and sold an inside kind of like a skinny post, jabbed outside. And so his intention was to break outside kind of towards the pylon in the end zone. And he got a little separation. The DB played that well. And Jackson just off his back foot. They were on the same page, floated it up. I'm sure you guys saw it. And Boykin had the wherewithal as well as the footwork to kind of give a basketball crossover and work back into the back of the end zone. And that was a thing of beauty. That was uh, one of my favorite plays and one of my favorite throws of the day by Jackson. So the rookies were on point like a harpoon on Sunday. From week one here, it seems like the Ravens might have found a few gems in the draft at wide receiver, which they have not had a very good track record of. So hopefully this is the start of something new. When we get back, since there is so much to dive in, we're going to talk about this offense a bit more, dive into Greg Roman, what Spencer saw out of that offense, and so stay tuned for that. But before we do that, if you found $100 on the street, would you pick it up or keep on walking? Of course you'd take the money, so why do you keep picking winners and not betting on them? That's why I go to my bookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay you when you win. Let's face it, why you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. Do the smart thing if you're going to bet this football season, bet with MyBookie. Did you know that you could bet on games after kickoff? If by the second half it looks like your bet is going to lose, you can always just take the other side. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. And no matter how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of the year. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Use promo code LOCKEDON to activate the offer. That's promo code LOCKEDON. Visit mybookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. All right, everybody, welcome back to Locked On Ravens. We still have Spencer Schultz here. And Spencer, let's talk about this offense because this was really their coming out party. What did you see from Greg Roman in this offense? In a way, this was a fifth preseason game for Greg Roman. They didn't reveal a ton, but... The three pillars of a Greg Roman offense and of this 2019-2020 Baltimore Ravens offense reared their heads. To me, those are RPOs, play actions, and power blocking slash power running schemes. None of them were too fancy. The RPOs, the one thing that stood out is that the Ravens kind of stole Andy Reid's favorite RPO, which is an outside zone where the back is going to take the ball to the outside, outside of the C-gap, and the backside across is slants. So it's going to be, this was the play they scored on, uh, that Hollywood had his first touchdown catch on. It was a slant that was a little bit deeper, and then a shallower three-step slant on the outside. That's an Andy Reid RPO. They stole that directly from the Chiefs. I'm sure the Chiefs are laughing about it. It was a, It's a crazy effective play right now, and it is being copycatted around the league. On those RPOs, and basically the entire premise of the offense is that Lamar Jackson is reading one key defender, and it makes it really simple for him. All of the concepts, the route spacing, is based on one key defender, and the goal of most of the plays, aside from, you know, the typical inside zone or a sweep or the standard stuff, so some of these fancier, more modern plays is to put conflict and make one defender have to make a decision. 
So, for instance, we were talking about the backside slants on that RPO. If the backside linebacker, he is the conflict defender. If he bites on the run and comes up and goes to go stop Mark Ingram, Jackson is going to throw one of the two slants right over his head. On the flip side, if the linebacker hesitates and kind of stays in coverage, that leaves Jackson to make the read option, hand the ball off probably more more times than not. Um, as he's trying to read a linebacker, not a defensive end, it's not just a standard read option where he's staring at a defensive end. But the best way to describe, as I said, is conflict defenders and making one key read. And Jackson also showed a really strong ability to diagnose coverage. He was talking after the game. It's crazy that, you know, the Ravens' left guard position was such a turnstile through the preseason, but there was actually some consistent play out of Bradley Bozeman here. I liked what I saw, Spencer. What did you see? So Greg Roman schemed up the best way to, and I don't want to say hide, but I can't think of a better word right now, hide maybe some deficiency out of left guard. They used the strength of Marshall Yonda, which is his ability to kind of just take an inside step and down block on a defender, a double team, or try to wash someone out. So Yonda very rarely pulled. I think he did twice. Bradley Bozeman pulled 11 times in the first half alone. I haven't gone over the tape of the second half yet, but that's a ton of pulling. Um, Bradley Bozeman was constantly in motion on both Mark Ingram touchdowns. Bradley Bozeman was a, a lead blocker that had pulled. He pulled in play actions where he formed kind of like a wall that was reminiscent of on a kick return. It's actually been made illegal for the two up men that are the lead blockers for the kick returner kind of grab arms and link that was made illegal in the NFL. So Bozeman and Gus Edwards, I think it was Gus Edwards both times, um, kind of linked arms and made a little wall for Lamar Jackson to move if he needed to. So Bozeman did a really good job. He got out in space. Patrick Ricard came in motion a ton and was used as well. So Bozeman and Ricard were the two guys that were the lead blockers clearing the way. I wouldn't expect the Ravens to do the exact same thing because if you know Bozeman's going to pull frequently and defenses are going to study that, they're going to shoot Bozeman's gap, run off of his hip, and try and blow plays up from the backside, and Greg Roman knows that. And it's all part of a big chess game, and the Ravens have been very mysterious. They said they didn't use anything new. I didn't see anything new. I didn't see any orbit motions. I didn't see that much jet sweep, anything like that. There was, I think, one Hollywood play that, honestly, if it was a pop pass, would have been a... 27-yard touchdown, untouched for Hollywood. So the bells and whistles are still completely hidden, and I think they're going to stay that way until week three. Even if Bozeman did need to be hidden a little bit, it still worked to perfection, and Bozeman can really up his game in practice and hopefully improve so that he doesn't need to be hidden as much. Someone who did not need to be hidden was Mark Ingram. He had an extremely efficient game, but on the flip side of that, while Justice Hill had a nice 13-yard run early in the first quarter, he was not as efficient as his running back counterpart. So overall, Spencer, how'd this grade out to you? Um, Mark Ingram is extremely efficient. He gets downhill. He's decisive. He's powerful. He has extremely underrated second-level speed. He's consistently on next-gen stats fastest ball carriers throughout the uh, last three years. He's been on there seven times, so his wheels are a little bit underrated. He runs with outstanding power. He can make himself skinny and get through holes. He moves piles. He's a darn good uh, receiving back, so Ingram is a stud. The Ravens got a steal with him. It's a joy that he wanted to come play here for not a crazy price tag. And I, I wouldn't be mad. I hope he hits some incentives because he's going to deserve it this year. On the flip side, as you said, Justice Hill was really inefficient to me. The first play on the first drive, the sweep, 
Justice Hill didn't have to do a thing. It was an incredible play design. So the Ravens lined up in a two-by-two in 12 personnel, meaning one running back and two tight ends. Nick Boyle was in the slot. He was not in line with his hand in the dirt. And Mark Andrews was on the other side. Each of them had a receiver on the outside. It was a mirror formation. And when you see Nick Boyle standing in the slot, you're going to assume that he's going to come in motion and be a lead blocker for an ISO or that the Ravens are going to run play action to the backside of wherever Nick Boyle goes. Instead, Mark Andrews pulled across the formation, went in full sprint, immediately went and targeted the cornerback on the outside and got to the second level. It was a TC pull, which means that the tackle, left tackle Ronnie Stanley in the center, Matt Skura pulled, and they double teamed a defender, completely walled him off, and Justice Hill kind of just broke out and got up the sideline. I was expecting him to make the man miss on the sideline or give him a little shake or something, and he... I think he might have had some first-game jitters or something of the sort. Um, there was another instance where there was a wide-open lane. I think it might have just been an ISO or a lead, and Justice Hill had a pretty big outside buffer to try and sprint to the sideline and just outrun everyone. And he kind of just went into contact and had his eyes down a little bit. So it was a shaky performance. Gus Edwards was really strong to me. It was kind of reminded me how in Chicago – when Jordan Howard was in the game, you knew what the Bears were going to do for the most part. So I'd like to see the Ravens kind of get a little bit more multiple with what happens when Gus Edwards is in the game. I guess they didn't want to show too much yet, as I said, but he did a really great job. He had 17 carries for 56 yards, only had an 11-yard run as his longest, um, but he made men miss in the backfield. He puts his head down at the right times and moves the pile he is an efficient runner as well, so I'm excited for him to learn and spell Mark Ingram and get some better opportunities moving forward. I just hope that they're not too blatantly obvious with what they do when Edwards is in the game. We've been talking about offense, but when we get back, we are going to get into the defense, dive into some stats, some players who really impress. So stay tuned, and we will be right back. But before we do that, make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let the Vivid Seats app help you get to your favorite live event. Enter promo code KICKOFF at checkout to receive a discount of up to $100. Welcome back, everybody, to Locked on Ravens, and let's dive right into this defense. Spencer, I want to start out with Matthew Judon, a guy who is now the Ravens' top pass rusher with the departure of Zadarius Smith. There were some questions coming in about how good this pass rush would be, and I thought it was excellent, starting with Judon. So what did you see out of Matthew here? The play of the game to me that shows how Matthew Judon is not just a pass rusher, not just a defensive end slash outside linebacker edge player, was a screen. It was kind of a swing to Kalen Balazs. Judon was on the weak side, and on the strong side of the defense was his own blitz, so Judon was going to drop into coverage. He patiently sat back for a split second and diagnosed the play. Matt Judon's speed, range, pursuit, tackling ability, and ability to cover are elite for his position. Absolutely elite. He can move in space. I recall at the stadium practice the Ravens had where Lamar Jack, you can't hit the quarterback, so Lamar Jackson's obviously going to run 40 yards downfield every time he tucks the ball. And Matt Judon kept up with him for about 40 yards on his hip and kind of got back there towards the end. Lamar probably could have outran him, but I was like, you know, Matt Judon's got wheels. So he's an athlete. He was really effective as a run stopper. He was harassing Ryan Fitzpatrick. He had two quarterback hits, a sack, and two tackle for loss. He had three tackles, all of which were solo. Judon is going to get paid. The Ravens need to pay him. He's a durable, 
knock on wood. He's an outstanding player, and I was really happy with his performance. He had the the hit that he put on Balage was the play of the game defensively for me. I posted kind of a video breakdown of that, so you should go check it out. But that was really impressive. I was happy for Judon. Let's move over to the secondary here and talk about Tony Jefferson. Jefferson's a guy who I really like. He's a great stand-up guy. He's a hard-hitting safety, can come up, stop the run. But his deficiencies, at least in my eyes over the course of his Ravens career, have been in coverage. So what did you see out of Jefferson? So Jefferson, I think, has had a little bit of a rough go in Baltimore. And he had a horrible, severe ankle injury last year that he played through for a little while. And I remember he posted a picture. His ankle was the size of a kneecap. So he was trucking through it. He's a trooper. I'm a, I'm a big Tony Jefferson fan, personally. I think he's a stud. And he looks a little bit lighter, a little bit thinner, and a little bit faster. With Earl Thomas, I think he has more freedom because he has more confidence in the range of Earl Thomas. And I truly think that Earl is a significant upgrade over Eric Weddle, both to be honest, IQ-wise, slightly an upgrade, and then athletically tenfold. So Jefferson is not just playing in the box. I personally think that box safeties are, if you're not Cam Chancellor, if you're not an elite box safety, you're a little bit overrated, and that position's a little bit overrated to me. It's kind of been a weird transition, and now there's a lot of dime linebackers coming out of it. But Jefferson was deep a lot, and he had made an amazing play deep where it was Preston Williams, who is a stud i loved out of colorado state i don't know how he didn't go drafted but he got deep with marlon humphrey marlon was kind of on him jefferson covered 20 grounds in the blink of an eye while the ball was in the air smacked preston williams right in the bucket and then that allowed marlon humphrey to jar the ball loose jefferson was laying the wood he's an enforcer he is a big hitter he has a big personality i'm a huge fan of the guy and i was really happy to see him excel he has struggled a bit in one-on-one matchups with tight ends Um, as he's not quite big enough and doesn't quite have the ball hawk range and length to be able to compete with some of them. But tight ends give safeties fits all the time. Tight ends are matchup problems. So I'm not putting that solely on him. And I was really excited to see how Jefferson excelled on Sunday. Yeah, and I'm right there with you. I don't think Jefferson's career in Baltimore has gotten off to the start that he's wanted and that Ravens fans have wanted, but he's such a hard worker, and he's a guy who everybody on the team loves. Overall, just a guy who can really play at a high level, and we saw this in Arizona, and the Ravens are just waiting for that to come out. Now, he hasn't been a terrible player over his two years in Baltimore. I don't want to put that in the air. He just has, you're right, struggled a bit against tight ends, and I think that That's really what Ravens fans have been focusing in on. But overall, Jefferson's a guy who I like to have a big, almost bounce back year. Let's move over to tackling. Missed tackles have really plagued them over the last few years. But I think this is a different season with new players on the roster. So what's your take on that? Chris Board is a guy that stands out to me, and that's why he's earned snaps. He is, to me, kind of like a Sam backer where he's best around the line of scrimmage. He can cover a little bit, and he's comfortable doing so, and he's got some range. He thudded Kenyon Drake in the backfield. He thudded Kalen Balaj. He's a real run stopper, so I'm looking for him to make a really big jump in his second year. I can see why the coaching staff was so high on him now. It took me until about uh, right before his con- the game that he got a concussion in. He had a- made a couple really nice plays, and I was like, oh, okay, I see something there. Then in this game, it stood out to me a lot. And there's a clear difference in play style and kind of what the shining talent is between him and between Kenny Young, whereas Kenny Young's best asset is his speed, quickness, and range. 
And Kenny Young can stick with the receiver. Chris Board's not going to stick with the slot receiver, uh, but Board is going to be able to come down and be a big body. He's been able to get off of blocks. He has a good feel for how to stop the run game. So with the loss of Mosley, he's a, a key piece, and I'm happy to see that the three of them, with Owasso as well, are getting snaps and getting looks and being lined up everywhere. So I'm happy with this Ravens inside linebacking group. Another really sure tackler to me is Marlon Humphrey, and especially for a cornerback. He understands where to go, how low to get, how to not shoot too early. And he's just aggressive physically without being reckless or risky or stupid about it. I think this is going to be the best tackling team as a whole. That also translates into special teams with Trawick and Bethel. Trawick was a stud to me on special teams on Sunday. I'm really happy that they kept him on the team. He actually got a, quite a few snaps on defense. He had two solo tackles and three overall. Um, so this team's looking strong and going to be difficult to break free and bust through three tackles and make a huge mess. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you there. Brandon Carr really impressed me, and I wanted to get your take because he's a veteran guy. He knows what he's doing out there, and it seemed like he really plays with a calm demeanor. So do you agree? Absolutely. He is cooler than the other side of the pillow, cool as a cucumber, whatever you want to call it. His style is less of a jamming press and more of a soft shoe, which is where you go up to press, but you don't actually use your hands or jam. You just want to get in the receiver's grill. He's a recovery cornerback where he gives a couple steps and is confident in his ability to catch up, play from behind. And there was an instance where there was a ball that was over his head and it, it was a long throw. And he lets the receiver show their hand and know what they're going to do. And then just all of a sudden, somehow he's 32 years old, fountain of youth. He reminds me of Terrence Newman on the Vikings that played for 17 years and got better with age, better with time, like fine wine. And he just finds a way to get there. He's confident in his ability. And if he gets beat, he's not frust that frustrated. Um, you know, it happens. Every cornerback does get beat. He's a little bit different from the common diva kind of cornerback, like Jalen Ramsey, you know, Got to, got to think I'm the best every single play. He strikes me as someone who's more realistic and less of an alpha personality, more of a realistic personality. So that's why the Jimmy Smith injury for a couple of weeks doesn't hurt so bad because of the stability and ability of Brandon Carr. Now, finally, let's, let's get into some special teams because the Ravens showed their hand with this fake punt that they ran where Anthony Levine accumulated his stat line of one carry for 60 yards. Do you think that this was a smart play for the Ravens? I think it was a smart play for the Ravens, and it was not a designed play. It is a play that Anthony Levine has been the up man for, I believe, five or six years now. And when Anthony Levine sees exactly what he wants, it is his call. He makes the call at the line. It's basically an audible, and he checks into it, and then Morgan Cox sends him the ball, and everybody knows about it. So now every single team is going to have to study that and worry about that and know that that could be coming and that allows the punt coverage to be better that allows more thoughts to be going through the punt return team's mind if you think that's all they've got in their bag of tricks you're crazy sam cook is like six for six they do all kinds of stuff harbaugh loves special teams prides himself on stuff like that so i thought it was outstanding and it was i mean it was still in the first half and it was still a competitive game at that point, you got your starters in. The point is to, you know, keep your offense on the field. And why wouldn't they do it? 
it makes no sense to say otherwise. It makes teams have to account on it. It's going to give Sam Cook more time. It's going to make the punt block team have to account for it. So if you think that it was a bad idea, I fully disagree with you. Feel free to come tell me why on Twitter. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I think that, you know, you can't let your foot up off of the gas here. It, you know, the first game of the season, even if it is almost like a fifth preseason game, it's another tune-up to get ready for week two against Arizona. You know, you want to be able to know that you can execute the plays in your playbook, even against, you know, maybe not the greatest team in Miami. But just don't let your foot up off the gas. Keep pushing down on their throats and make sure that, you know, teams know that you're for real. So I'm right there with you. I think it was a great call for the Ravens to really show what they're made of this year. So that's all that I have for you today, Spencer. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. We're going to talk again next week, hopefully after another Ravens win. Yeah, the Ravens are currently 12 and a half point favorites. That line might go down a touch, might go up a touch. It's the second highest line. So it's going to be difficult for Kyler Murray coming into M&T Bank. But I'm really excited. I'm very high on Kyler Murray. I think it'll be a fun matchup. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. And I'll talk to you next Tuesday. Yes, wonderful. Thank you, Spencer. Tomorrow, we are going to be doing our second crossover Wednesday with the hosts of Lockdown Cardinals. So be sure to stay tuned for that, for all of the analysis and some questions with the enemy. So stay tuned and I will see you tomorrow.